Please uh, turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 29. I want to read the first several verses of Jeremiah 29. While you're turning there, uh, let me say this. In our um, affirmation of faith from the Westminster Confession of Faith, we, we have affirmed, these may be words that you've never spoken before, so if it caused uh, some complication for you, I beg that you indulge me and, and indulge us. Uh, but we affirmed in that confession of faith what it is that God has done when he establishes civil authorities, civil governments, and the ends or the purposes to which those civil authorities, those civil governments have been established. What we're going to do now is read a picture of how the people of God live as they live in the midst of those civil authorities, those civil governments. And then we're going to talk about it and we're going to look at some passages in the New Testament which underscore the basic themes that God, through Jeremiah, gives to his people in this passage And because we believe all 66 books of the Old and New Testaments belong to us, they all are the Word of God for us, this becomes instructive for us as the people of God, as we live in the midst of the civil authorities which God has established. So read with me at Jeremiah 29, beginning at verse 1. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And it said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare." For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord Plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Thanks be to God. Lord, help us as we seek to think your thoughts after you, 
Give us your spirit to open up this, your word, so that we might understand it and embrace it, be shaped by it, and then send us out into this world in which we live, among this nation in which we live, there to be the people you would have us be in their midst. Give us your spirit to these ends. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Um, it, it, it should be um, fairly apparent um, at some level why I'd be preaching from Jeremiah 29 and talking about these things on November 4th, 2012, just two days before a very significant election. That's the rationale for wanting to do this. Because I want in my own head and heart to be thinking clearly, and I want for us as a people in our heads and our hearts to be thinking clearly. So I was thinking about this this week. I, I was struck by the fact that so much about the Christian life, so much about the gospel, in fact, is paradoxical or or we could say counterintuitive, and maybe in some cases even shocking. It, it just, the gospel just says things and does things that just kind of turn everything upside down. You know, I would say it turns everything on its head, but actually what happens is that the gospel turns everything right side up. But it's shocking to us sometimes and stunning for us sometimes. And I have to tell you that if you had been living in Babylon... In these days, these days of exile, when God sent this letter through the prophet Jeremiah to these people, you would have been shocked. You would have been stunned. This is completely counterintuitive, completely paradoxical, completely unexpected. And that's the way Christianity is. I mean, think about it. It's when I'm weak that I'm strong. Think about it. It is through a death that death is conquered. Think about it. It's by giving up that I get. It's by losing that I gain. So much in the letters of Paul, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, throughout the scriptures, so much is counterintuitive and paradoxical. And I think that's true for us right now. Here's another paradox I'm increasingly convinced about. It is actually those, if you want to write this down, I'll go slow and I'll repeat it again, or you can just get it online. It is actually those who have relinquished their attachment to this world, to this age, to this life, who become the world's best friends. Let me say it again. It is actually those who have relinquished their attachment to this world, to this age, to this life, who become the world's best friends and greatest assets. Now, where do I get that? Well, I get it beginning here, in this passage in Jeremiah, and then from passages in the New Testament as well. 
Let me give you, let me give you three, three hooks. I mean, there are a lot of themes in this passage. I'm actually going to kind of sneak a fourth one in here, but let me just give you three hooks to hang this passage on. First, there is in Jeremiah 29 a picture of the people of God. A picture of the people of God. And then there is, second, a program for the people of God. And then the last thing will just be a very brief, but I think very significant, practical application of what it is we're looking at here. So a picture of the people of God, a program for the people of God, and a practical application of what we're talking about. First, the picture. The picture is a picture of the people of God. Look at verse 1. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles. And then verse 4. Thus says the Lord God, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And then verse 7. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your own welfare. Who are the exiles? Five times that word is used in this passage, in the first seven verses or so. Who are the exiles? Well, the exiles are Israel, right? The exiles are the people of God. And where are the people of God? They're in Babylon. They're in the midst of Babylon. They're in a foreign land. They're in a foreign culture. How did they get there? And this is the fourth thing that I'm sort of slipping in here. How did they get here? It's striking, isn't it, that verses 1 and 2 identify Nebuchadnezzar as the means by which those people got into exile in Babylon. That's what verses 1 and 2 indicate. Verse 2, whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah, the craftsmen, all the rest, had departed from Jerusalem. How did they get there? They got there because Nebuchadnezzar marshaled his forces against the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah. He attacked the southern kingdom of Judah and began transporting particularly the educated, the skilled, the learned, the wise, the philosophers, all of the leaders, he began transporting them from Jerusalem and Judea to Babylon. And he did it over an extended period of time, beginning in six, just, just short of 600 B.C. How'd they get there? Nebuchadnezzar, right? Well, yes, at the human level. At the human level, we can read the history books. We can see the convergence of circumstances. We can understand that Nebuchadnezzar, the head of the greatest power on the planet at that particular time, was in a position to do these things, and it's because of Nebuchadnezzar that they end up in Babylon, exiled from their homeland. But who ultimately, at the end of the day, is responsible for the people being where they are? Is life a crapshoot? Is life the product of random forces, chance occurrences? Look at verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile into Babylon. How'd they get there? Ultimately, they got there 
because of God. Because of the design and purpose and plan and intentions and wisdom and righteousness and compassion and power and glory of the invisible hand at work behind the visible hands. That's how Israel gets into exile in Babylon. By the design and purpose of the sovereign hand of God. And what emerges then is a picture of the people of God who are where they are as an exiled people. They are where they are because of God. Go from macro to micro. Why are you, very personally and individually, why are you where you are? Touching every detail and circumstance of your lives. Exile was not easy for the Israelites in Babylon. You can't paste over the exile and view the exile as something sanitized and martinized and polished up and cleaned up. It was dirty and nasty and ugly and people died along the way and were abused and mistreated badly. Why are they where they are? They are where they are under the sovereign, ruling, controlling hand of a sovereign God. And who are they? Folks, who are they? Say it again five times in those first few verses. They are called an exiled people. What does that mean? Purely and simply, it means they're not at home. They're not at home. Babylon is not their capital city. Nebuchadnezzar is not their king. Babylonian culture is not their native and home culture. They're away from home. And what do they want more than anything else on the planet? Went to a concert Friday night. Heard a band called Celtic Thunder. You gotta know I loved it. And in the second half of the show, one of these Irish singers sang a Michael Bublé song. If you know Michael Bublé, Home. I want to go home. Can I just press this with you for a second? Is there anybody in this room who doesn't want to go home? Home, where King Jesus rules, where King Jesus reigns. Home, where the culture is familiar. Home, 
where the songs are sweet, home, where the griefs and the anguishes and the sorrows are gone, where the sense of feeling out of touch and out of step and alienated is forever past. Is there anybody in this room who doesn't want to go home? That's what they wanted, folks. And that's why God has to caution them as he speaks to them ultimately this word of hope. He has to caution them in two ways. He cautions them first by giving them something to do, build houses, plant gardens, have weddings, give your sons, give your daughters. You're going to be there for a while. You're going to be there for a while. And then he cautions them in a second way. He says, don't listen to prophets who promise you something else. I didn't send them. They're spinning dreams out of their own heads. You're an exiled people. You're living away from your home. I know that's a struggle, but here's the word of hope. I'm not going to forget you. I haven't forgotten you. And when the time is right, I will come to you and bring you back to me. Because I know the plans that I have for you. Plans to give you a future and a hope. But until that day comes, stay put. Stay there. Do what human beings do. Build houses, live in them, plant gardens, harvest them, have weddings. And this is implicit in it, but it's clearly there. But as you do those things, you do those things as the people of God. You do those things as the people of God. You do those things reflecting your home culture, your native culture. You do those things reflecting your allegiance to your higher king, me. You don't do those things as Babylonians. You do those things as the people of God. That's a picture that emerges from Jeremiah 29, but let me suggest to you, That if you travel down the corridor of history several centuries and you listen to Peter and to Paul, you will hear Peter and Paul saying the same thing. Listen to 1 Peter, the first chapter and the first verse. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Peter, a Jew, And you can read the commentaries. Don't take my word for it. Do your own homework. Do your own research. Read the commentaries. The commentaries pretty universally will tell you that Peter, the Jew, is writing to a largely Gentile audience in these regions. These regions that make up what is now Turkey, what was then Asia Minor, and extending even beyond up into Europe. And what language does he use as he addresses them? Look, these are people who grew up in Niles, Michigan. That's where I grew up, by the way, just in case. 
These are, these are people who grew up in Dallas, Texas. These are people who grew up in Bozeman, Montana. These are people who grew up in Orlando, Florida. These are Gentile nations, Gentiles living in the places where they grew up. And how does Peter describe them? He describes them as elect exiles. He takes these Old Testament images laden with power and force and drama and he applies those images to Gentiles living in the places where they've always lived. And he calls them elect, chosen. What's that imagery? It's the imagery of God choosing Israel out of all of the nations of the earth to make Israel His own treasured possession. Peter is now saying, that is you, chosen out of the nations, made His own treasured possession. And exiles. What are exiles? Folks who are living away from their homeland. Do you get the power and the irony even and the paradoxical nature of all of this? Wait a minute. I'm not in exile. I live in Cappadocia. I was born in Cappadocia. I grew up in Cappadocia. I went to the University of Florida in Cappadocia. This is home. No, no, a thousand times. No. You are the elect people of God. Chosen out of the nations to be the treasured possession of God. And you're an exiled people. And so Peter goes on and you can read First and Second Peter and you can hear him again and again and again and again admonishing this exiled people to live lives in keeping with who they are. Live lives in keeping with who they are. Paul, Colossians 1.13, a passage I referred to last week. Paul saying to the Colossians, you've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Transfer? Wait a minute. I'm here. I'm in Vero Beach, Florida. I'm still hanging But you see, at these profoundly significant and deep, deep levels, a transaction, a transfer has taken place. And while I am, yes, a citizen of this realm, I've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into an eternal kingdom. Kingdom, you see, where there is a king. Think about this. Think about this. Think about the implications of it. Nobody or virtually no one in this room, I don't know for sure, I don't know your, your genealogies and your parentage and grandparentage and great-grandparentage, I don't know that stuff. But as I look around here, I know pretty much everybody who's here, and here's what I know, I know that there isn't anybody in this place who is from this place. Right? We're from Holland, and we're from Ireland, and we're from Jamaica, and we're from Scotland, Scotland, and we're from Europe, the mainland. We're from all over the place. But here's what happened, didn't it? Our forebears, when they came here, what did they do? They may have come of their own volition. 
They may not have come of their own volition. But at some point, what they had to do was transfer an allegiance, didn't they? They had to repudiate an old allegiance and embrace a new allegiance. You see what's happened to you as a Christian by the grace of God. You've been transferred from one kingdom into another kingdom and God implicitly and explicitly on virtually every page of the New Testament is summoning us to live in keeping with our citizenship. Under the gracious rule and reign of King Jesus. As a chosen, elect people living in exile, living away from our home. Living away from the culture that is so familiar to us and for which we long. Right? A kingdom of righteousness and justice and peace. A kingdom where everything is put back together and all is right and there's no longer grief and anguish and suffering and disappointment and any of the rest. Right? That's the culture that we long for. And we have a new citizenship and we have sworn a new allegiance. And here perhaps, at least from Paul's letters, is the most striking example of what I'm talking about. It's Philippians 3.20 where Paul, writing to these Philippian Christians, says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior. And the word in the original is the word, you can write this down, you, you know, I'm going to give it to you just so you know that I know what it is. The word in the original is politeuma. Politeuma. The first few letters we get a bunch of words from. P-O-L-I-T. Polit. From the Greek, polis, city. Polit, political, policy. Those words come from that Greek word, politeuma, What does it refer to? It refers to a way of doing life. The administration of a government. The administration of civil affairs in a commonwealth. Paul is saying, remember, you have a citizenship. A politeuma. There is an administration. There is a way of doing government. There is a way of doing life. There is a way of conducting affairs. That you conduct those affairs in a particular commonwealth. We have a citizenship. Which is in heaven. And here's the striking thing. This word and a similar word that you find in 127 of Philippians, which I'll come to in a minute, this word, these words are found only in Paul's letter to the Philippians. You only find these words in Paul's letter to the Philippians. And why would that be? Here's why. Here's why. Because Philippi, a city in Macedonia, was a city refounded by Caesar Augustus, and populated by retired army personnel, officers, enlisted men, the whole thing. Meaning, this city, Philippi, in Macedonia, surrounded by a foreign culture, an alien culture, was populated by people whose citizenship is far away in Rome. What irony! 
What powerful irony for these Christians now who are living in that city. What is Paul doing? Paul is using what is an incredibly powerful image for these Philippian Christians, reminding them that they do have a citizenship and that that citizenship, as precious as their citizenship in Rome is, which means they're freed from certain tax liabilities and they have or obligations, and they have the opportunity to own land and a whole bunch of other stuff that comes with Roman citizenship. As precious as all of that is, they have another citizenship. And they have another capital city. And it is from that capital city that they await a Savior. They have another emperor, King Jesus. See, that's the picture that emerges Across all of Scripture, Jeremiah 29, 1 Peter 1, Colossians 1, Philippians 1 and 2 and 3. Who are we? A chosen people, a people living in exile, a people away from our homeland, away from our capital city with another emperor. But here's the stunning and striking thing. Here's the striking thing about Jeremiah 29, and it runs through the whole of the New Testament explicitly or implicitly. Here's the striking thing. Let me put it to you in the form of a negative first. If I'm an Israelite living in Babylon, living in a foreign culture, wanting desperately to go to my homeland, and I hear the promise that God is going to come at a particular moment, and when He comes, He's going to bring me back home, what's the inclination of my heart? Button down the hatches, hang in there, persevere, Let the Babylonians go to hell in a handbasket. And I'll just wait for the day of God's arrival. Do you see what is so profoundly paradoxical about what God says to the the exiles living in Babylon? He says something completely counter that. He says to them, Seek the peace of the city to which I have called you. Seek the welfare of the city to which I have called you. What city is that? It's Babylon. Who are the Babylonians? The Babylonians are the ones that marched across the Fertile Crescent, trampled our land, destroyed our villages, killed our women and children, took us off in bondage to a foreign place. Seek the peace and welfare of that city? You know why Jonah was swallowed by the whale? Because God told him to go to Nineveh. And what was he going to do when he got to Nineveh? He was going to preach a gospel of repentance. And you know why he didn't go to Nineveh? Because deeply, deeply embedded in his consciousness was a hatred of the Ninevites, a part of the Assyrian kingdom, which had trampled centuries before, had trampled across the land, done the same thing that the Babylonians did a couple of centuries later. And God said to Jonah, go to Nineveh and preach a gospel of repentance in Nineveh. And Jonah didn't go. And you know why he didn't go? Not only because he didn't like Ninevites, but because he knew that if he went, God would be faithful to the preaching and the Ninevites would repent. And he didn't want their repentance. And he ran. 
You see what God is saying here to these exiles? Seek the peace of the city. Go out into the city. Pursue its welfare. He says, pray for Babylon. Pray for its well-being. Don't withdraw into ghettos. Don't hide yourself away. Don't button down the hatches. Don't simply persevere and endure until that future day when I come to take you back to myself. Go into the city. And as you go into the city, how will you go? How would Israelites go? Would they go as Babylonians? No. They would go as Israelites. They would go as Israelites. Out into the city. What would they carry with them? What would they take with them out into the city? What has been pressed into the fabric and core of their existence as they go out into the city, seeking the welfare of the city? The values of the eternal kingdom. The truth of the eternal kingdom. The righteousness, the compassion of the eternal kingdom. All of the stuff that flows from the God of that kingdom to them and from and through them out into the world. All of the stuff that makes them distinctively, distinctively Israelites. What do the Israelites become? They become a manifestation of a better kingdom in the midst of the kingdoms of this world. They become an evidence of the fact that the God of heaven and earth, in and through a very real kingdom, invisible, a spiritual kingdom, as we confessed about civil authorities, they have the power of the sword. The church does not have the power of the sword. But the church is where the kingdom gets localized and the God of glory is pressing the realities of his own kingdom into our lives and in us, through us, out into the world in the midst of the kingdoms around, around us. What is, what is welfare? What is peace? It's the word shalom. Seek the shalom of the city to which I've called you. For the Israelites, that was Babylon. But for the church of Jesus Christ, and for Christ the King Presbyterian Church, elect exiles living under the rule and reign of King Jesus, about whose kingdom we do know some things, What does it mean for Christ the King? It means that we here are the, and not us alone. We're not in this by ourselves. There are other churches in this county. Places where the gospel's loved. Places where the gospel's preached. Places where people pray. Places where people are in earnest. I can say this tongue in cheek. They're confused about a few things, but that's okay. My wife and I think this is the best church in the county. I don't know what you think, but we think it's the best church in the county. And I hope other people think their church, where they love the gospel, I hope they think their church is the best church in the county. What does it mean for us? We are the evidence of the presence of the kingdom in the midst of the world. And God is moving and God is on the march. And he is pressing the realities of his kingdom into our souls, into our hearts, and through us out into the world. Who are we? Peter said it. We're an elect group of exiles living, as Paul put it, with a new citizenship 
Citizenship in an eternal kingdom, a kingdom that will never, ever go away. I've said a couple times over the last couple of weeks that what goes on here, what goes on here in the context of gathered worship is immeasurably more important than what goes on out there. Let me help you understand what I mean. What happens here? People become Christians here. Souls destined for an eternity either of unimaginable bliss or horrific agony are transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. That happens here. That's happened here. I can go around the room. I can put my finger, I can point at people in whose lives that has happened. What happens here? This is where time and eternity intersect. This is where the invisible assembly to which Glenn and Zach both refer frequently, the spirits of just men made perfect who have departed from us and who are in the presence of Jesus Christ, This is a place where this world and that world converge with King Jesus invisible to us, but very, very real in our midst. That happens here. What happens here? What happens here is that by the grace of God, through the foolishness of preaching, you and I are formed and molded and shaped by King Jesus through the ministry of his word. We are prepared, shaped, molded, equipped to go out into this world to carry with us those things that are uniquely, beautifully distinctive of the kingdom of King Jesus. And which you find occasionally in some places because of common grace and creation in the image of God and all of the rest. But which ultimately are borrowed capital. What happens here, my friends, is that you and I are molded and shaped a bit more each week after the image of Christ. So that we might take the realities of King Jesus with us into our families and out into the world. And there is nothing bigger, higher, more significant, nor more beneficial to the world around us than that. Have you ever asked yourself the question, what would our culture look like if all of those organizations and institutions founded, established by Christians having been shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you were to extract all of those institutions from this culture, what would be left? There'd be some stuff. There'd be no women's refuge. There'd be no habitat for humanity. There'd be no source. There'd be no Red Cross. There'd be no YMCA. Educational institutions, philanthropic institutions, disappear like the enemy in a video game. That's what I mean when I say what transpires in here is immeasurably more significant than what transpires out there because what happens here is of first importance and without what happens here, none of what happens out there, with some exceptions, 
all of which are borrowed capital, would happen out there. The church of Jesus Christ in the midst of the nations is the heart and the soul and the hope of every nation. And what does this mean at a practical level? And this will be short, but I hope poignant and I hope you understand the implications. I am to seek the peace of the city to which the Lord my God has called me. I am to pursue the well-being of this culture. I am to pray for this Babylon in which I find myself. And folks, what that means, I believe, at a very, very practical level, is simply this. I can't make you vote. I can't tell you how to vote. I can't make you vote. These may be things that I don't need to say to this particular group because I do know you pretty well. But for the record, I'm going to say them. I can't make you vote, and I can't tell you how to vote. What I can say is that I believe from the depths of my heart, that to participate in the political process, exercising the freedoms we have, is to seek the peace of the city to which we have been called. And so I would say to you lovingly and pastorally, if you're over 18, vote. Seek the peace of the city. Employ the means which God in His sovereign providence has appointed for you and by which you may seek the peace of the city. It's not the only way. Establishing organizations like the Refuge and Habitat for Humanity and other things, those are legitimate means by which we seek the peace of the city to which we've been called. But at this particular moment, this particular juncture, can't make you vote, but as your pastor... I can admonish you to vote because it is a means by which we seek the peace of the city to which we've been called. And then second, I would say this. With all my heart, I believe that at certain times, in certain places, there are certain issues that are not political issues, though they may become politicized but they are intensely and inherently human issues. They have to do with the welfare of the city. They don't have to do ultimately with civil rights. They have ultimately to do with what it will mean to be a civil society. These issues rise above party affiliation, political philosophy, and even religious conviction. They rise above social policy, economic policy, foreign policy. They have to do with the shalom of the city. And with all my heart, I believe there are two such issues very much in play in this election. And they are the sanctity of human life and the sanctity of the institution of marriage. And I believe with all my heart that these do not have to do with civil rights, 
political philosophy, political allegiance, or even religious association. These are inherently, intrinsically, and intensely human issues. The issues themselves are not explicitly on the ballot, but there are candidates on the ballots who have opinions about them. And as lovingly and as pastorally as I can put it, I plead with you for the well-being of the city to which God has called us that you exercise your prerogative as a citizen of this land, reflecting, reflecting the truth the values, the compassion, the goodness, the justice, the mercy of that higher kingdom and that higher allegiance. And you vote in order to safeguard the sanctity of every human life and the sanctity of the institution of marriage. You are the people of God in the midst of the nations. You have a higher allegiance. And you have a responsibility because of that higher allegiance to seek the peace of this city to which you've been called. Please come out tonight because we want to pray. We want to pray for ourselves and we want to pray for this city to which we've been called. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, King of glory.